2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and, shall, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We are living in a cultural context of one of destructive confusion. Of course, all of us are experiencing these negative realities, but certainly our children, our youth, our college students that are at the forefront of these cultural pressures are the ones who are most affected and experience the most difficulties because of them. So what grace? I mean, what amazing, precious grace that on this Sunday where we are celebrating our graduates, Brody and Josh, that this is the Sunday that the Lord had in his providence for us to be in this passage. Now, I want to be very clear. I think this passage is perfect for young men about to step into college and beyond high school. But friends, listen to me. If you think this is only for high school kids stepping into college and beyond, you're mistaken. This passage is for you. Whether you're 9 or 90 this morning, this passage is for you. Now, I understand, even as I've been preparing this all week for you, that this passage will be personally offensive for many of you. This passage is not easy to receive by those who have allowed worldliness into your life. And frankly, Friends, most of us have allowed some level of worldliness into our lives. It's not a passage that's hard to understand. In fact, it's, it's one of those passages that, frankly, um, it, it's, it's so simple. When you read it, you go, well, of course, of course. In fact, most of what I'm going to say today, working through these rhetorical questions, and all of the rhetorical questions, there's really no debate about them. Of course, you already know the answer to all of them. There's no debate. There's no discussion. You know it. It's simple. But, but it, all the same, it offends the one. This passage will offend the one who is seeking to be friends with Christ at the same time while seeking to be friends with the world. So the passage has two commandments. 
One, a commandment of prohibition, what you shall not or should not do, what you cannot do if you are a saint of the living God. If you are a believer in Christ, you cannot be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And then at the very end of the passage, verse 1 of chapter 7, is a a, a, um, a command that is in response to the transformation of the gospel. So since you've been transformed by the gospel, since you've received the promises of the gospel, here's how you ought to to live. And in the middle of these two commands is the, the argument, the supporting text for why these two things are true. So with these two commands, here's how I want to divide our time this morning. Number one, do not pollute what is holy. That's the basic command. Do not pollute what is holy. Friends, if you're a believer today, by definition, that means by the blood of Jesus, you have been made righteous and holy before living God. Don't then take what is pollution and perverted and wicked and bring it into a life that's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And then secondly, seek righteousness in everything about your life, in what you do, in what you think about, in what you give your heart to. Seek righteousness. Let's begin with the first commandment. It's right there in verse 14 of chapter 6, where the text says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't pollute what is holy. Now, I would begin with just an admonition to you there that, that, that there, this is a prohibition against partnering with sin. Beloved, if you are a believer in Jesus, you cannot both love Jesus and partner with that is with anything that is in rebellion to Jesus. Now, the oldest pretext for rebellious disobedience, I mean the absolute oldest pretext for rebellious disobedience is to confuse and obfuscate God's commands. You can go all the way back to the very first sin in Genesis chapter 3. God had put Adam and Eve in the garden, given them one command where they could not eat. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any uh, any tree of the garden? Satan in that moment was trying to confuse, muddle, make unclear the very clear commandment of God. And when we get to verse chapter 6, verse 14, there's really no need to consult a commentary or theologian to understand what it means. It's pretty clear. It's pretty straightforward. Verse 14 states the simple and direct prohibition against the saints of God, connecting, associating, partnering with those who are in rebellion against God. Now, one of the primary ways that this command has been applied is to to the teaching, rightly so, of the prohibition against Christians marrying non-Christians. This is certainly an appropriate and correct application of this prohibition. The most intimate um, relationships we have this side of heaven is our our marriage relationships. And so it it is inconsistent to think that one who loves Jesus would marry, connect themselves, their lives, their hearts, their world with someone who is in rebellion to Jesus. That's a right connection to make out of this passage. 
but is not the only application we can make from this passage. For a long time, many in the church have sought to be accepted by the world. Sometimes this desire for the world's approval has been spiritualized by claiming that worldly acceptance was desired so that we, would be, we could be an, a, have an influence for the gospel amongst the world. And so the church did things that looked like the world and, and acted like the world, thinking that if we, 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 we attracted the world with worldly things, that somehow we could do a switcheroo on them. We'd get them in the house, get them in the church, then tell them about Jesus, and they'd all get saved. What what has been proven is that when the church seeks the world's approval, it soon surrenders holiness for happiness. It'll soon surrender faithfulness for acceptance. It'll soon give up righteousness for attempting to have coolness, godliness for worldliness. The Old Testament law prohibited yoking together Animals that that did not go together. Deuteronomy chapter 14 gave a prohibition against other things, fine linen and cheap linen, but one of the things it said is you shall not yoke an oxen, an ox with a donkey. One clean, the other animal unclean, each of different natures, understanding in in a practical sense it would be cruel to bind them together. They, They don't work well together. They're not doing the same type of work. This is the idea that's been picked up on in verse 14. Yoking, that, that yoke is that, that animal harness that connects two animals together in one singular purpose. To be yoked together or to partner requires mutual direction, desire, allegiance, and master. Who you tie your heart to, your mind to, and your life to matters. Now, I'm going to be blunt here. This is not an issue of debate, consideration, opinion, or preference. This is a very clear and direct command of God. The Bible says, do not. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You don't need a commentary to understand that. You don't need a theologian to say, understand that. You just simply need to receive that very clear, direct command of God. Now that's the prohibition, do not. But then following that is the explanation. So uh, the, Paul continues and, and, he, and explains that righteousness and rebellion cannot be united. Verses 14, the second half of verse 14, all the way through the first half of verse 16, ask five rhetorical questions. And all five of them have the same answer, each demonstrating a different aspect of relationship. So the same truth is declared with each question. Righteousness and rebellion cannot be united. Now, working through these questions... He first says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? In other words, there cannot be partnership between righteous obedience and wicked rebellion. 
The, the, the word that is used there means a relationship involving shared purpose and activity. Partnership, sharing. To be in a partnership and shared, and shared purpose is to seek the same thing and desire the same outcome. When people enter into business together in a partnership, there may be multiple partners, but, but they are all focused on the singular success of the business. To be in partnership means that you have an agreed upon, a shared desire outcome work. The one seeking righteousness and the one who is in rebellion against the Lord are by definition seeking different goals. And the text says, what partnership can, can you have together? What partnership can righteousness and lawlessness have? One is rebelling against God, one is seeking obedience before God. There is no partnership there. Then he says, or what fellowship has light with darkness? There is no fellowship between light and darkness. The, the Greek word there is koinonia. It means an association involving close mutual relations, uh, relations and involvement, close association, fellowship, connectivity. 1 John chapter 1 says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He would also say that the light shines in the darkness. In the Gospel of John, he writes that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You and I understand this principle just in nature, that the very nature of light is that it expels darkness. You cannot have both light and darkness. If you are in a dark room and you turn on the light, the darkness must flee. Light is, by definition, opposed to darkness. And the text says, what fellowship, what quantania, what, a, what close association can light have with darkness? And, of course, the answer is none. And then he says, what accord has Christ with Belial? Now, that's a word that we don't use often. It's, it's, uh, I think it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. It either means Satan or the Antichrist. And the question is, what, what, what accord, what agreement can Christ and Satan have together? The, the Greek word that's used there, you'll recognize, is symphonesis. It's the word that we get our English word, symphony, from. When a symphony gathers together to play music, they have to agree they're going to play off the same sheet music. You can't have 100 people coming together and all deciding to play their own song. It would be a disastrous mess. But they come together, they play off the same music together in accord, in agreement with one another. And when they play in agreement and in accord with one another, they have symphony. They make beautiful music together in agreement. Jesus came to accomplish the will of God and provide a redemption for the lost. 
Satan is in open rebellion against God and is working to kill and destroy man. They have no symphony with one another. Then he asks, well, what portion? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The word there means to have something in common or part of, to share. The idea there is an inheritance or a, 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 a shared portion of something. Now, you and I understand inheritances are for children, not strangers. Strangers have no claim to an inheritance. They have no right to the blessing of the parents. Only children do. Those who are not covered by the blood of Jesus have no part of the blessing, the promises, or future hope of the redeemed. And then he says, listen carefully to this. Verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? The word there means to work out a joint agreement, to agree on, to arrange together mutual agreement. Maybe a more common thing would be go together. He says, what, what idols go together with the temple of the living God? There ought to be a, a reaction when you think about that, a negative reaction. The bringing an idol into the temple of the living God would be a defilement, would be an, a, um, an offensiveness to the holiness of God. One of my favorite testimonies in the Old Testament of an attempt to defile the holiness of God comes in 1 Samuel chapter 5. The, the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was uh, a box, and over the box is where the Spirit of the living God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle. The Philistines captured it. It's a beautiful gold-covered um, box, and so they took it, and they put it in their temple to the pagan Zat Dagon. They brought it right into the temple. They put it down in front of their, their idol. In my mind's eye, the title, uh, idol must have been large. And uh, then they all went home. The next morning, they get up and they come to the temple and the idol had fallen on its face in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, when you, when you worship idols, you have to pick them up and move them. And sometimes they fall over. So I'm sure they just thought, well, the wind must have blown. And so they picked the idol back up. They set the idol back up and put the Ark Covenant at the, at the base of this pagan idol. Go home, go to bed, and wake up the next morning. And again, the idol is fallen again, but this time his head and both his hands have been severed. Well, at this point they go, I, I think something's going on. <laughs> and about that time, God's judgment began to pour out upon the people of the city and tumors and 
sickness began to befall them and they began to be fearful. And so they said, well, let's, move, let's get it out of town. They moved it to another city. And wherever the ark went, um, God's judgment was poured out upon the city and, and tumors and sickness uh, uh, befell the people. It was so bad that these pagan Philistines gathered together a guilt offering, put it on a cart, and then put the, cart, put the animals for a sin sacrifice to, to, to lead the cart, put the uh, Ark of the Covenant on the cart, and then by God's amazing power, those animals delivered the cart back to Israel with a, a guilt sacrifice and with the animals for the sacrifice to be made so that they could get, uh, they could get the Ark of the Covenant away from them. And the point of that is, dear friends, if you put the, the, a pagan idol in the presence of the living God, it is offensive and it cannot stand. The righteousness of God will have no part of the wickedness of man. And in all of these examples, all of these rhetorical questions, the point is the same. You cannot be connected to Jesus and be connected to the world. You cannot be yoked to the world and be yoked to Jesus. You will either love one and hate the other. To be yoked to Jesus is to reject the world, and to be yoked to the world is to reject Jesus. Paul then quotes Leviticus and Isaiah and Ezekiel. God calls us out to be his people, to be separate from the world, that we might be blessed to be called his sons and his daughters. And then in the second part of verse 16, you've had the prohibition, you've had the explanation, now we have a declaration, that is the church is the temple of God. Look at what he says. He says, what agreement is the temple of God with idols? And then he says, for we, for we are the temple of the living God. Like a book end to verse 14, verse 16, the second part of this, declares that we are the temple of the living God. Now notice in this passage, the declaration of who is the temple is plural. We are the temple of the living this is a declaration to and about the church. Paul is writing to the church. We are the temple of the living God. Now, this may seem strange to you because most of the time when we teach about the temple, where is the temple of God today? We teach that the temple of God today is you. You are the temple of the living God because the Spirit of God dwells within you once you've been saved. That's certainly true and a right teaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Once you've been saved, you are filled with the Spirit of the living God. God no longer dwells over the Ark of the Covenant. God's Spirit dwells in the heart of every believer. Thus, every believer is the temple of the living God. Now that's true. But Paul says here, we, not you, not them, but we, the church, is the temple of the living God. In other words, collectively, the saints of the living God bear testimony. We are God's temple. Now let me press this into you just a little bit. That ought to break your heart. 
It ought to cause you to be more fearful of the living God than the Philistines were when they begged God to take back the ark from them when they put it before the idol. And the reason I say that is because we, the church of the living God, have not kept the temple pure from worldliness and wickedness. We've allowed church membership to be weaker than joining a local social club. We've allowed those who claim membership in the church while they're openly living in rebellion before the righteousness of God. We've oftentimes been more concerned with the world's opinion of us than God's judgment of us. And we're all products of our time. My childhood was during the 70s and 80s. My high school years were during the 90s. And during those years, I often heard church people making the appeal that the church and Christians could be as fun and as exciting as the enticements of the world were. We were living in a day when the the culture was turning away from the gospel. And church culture more and more was desperately attempting to keep the attention of the crowd while mimicking what the world was doing. We tried to be as cool as the world. But the more we tried, the more foolish we were. As a pastor, I've been pastoring now a little over 20 years, I, I inherited a church culture that saw church membership more concerned with addition rather than being a testimony to the righteousness of God. I'm just telling you, the longer I pastor and the more I see that destructive and dangerous reality, I am more and more and more convicted that not recognizing that we are the temple of God is dangerous to the individuals, dangerous to the church, and disobedient to the command of God. Listen to me. Listen to me. I want to set you free from something. The church will never be in the cool club. Do you hear me? Listen, high school has not changed. <laughs> there's still the cool table and there's still the not cool table. I was with the band kids. We were not at the cool table. There's just something in it, so we want to be with whoever it is that we have declared as cool. Friends, listen to me. Let loose of it. The church will never be with the cool kids. Quit trying to be accepted by the world. Quit trying to, appeal, to appear fashionable and cool. About the time the church gets fashionable, we're just 15, 20 years late. We're always behind the times. Quit chasing what the world loves. Everything this world has is going to be consumed in the judgment. It's worthless. It's temporary at best. 
We are the temple of the living God. Seek the righteousness of Christ. Desire the pleasure of God. Desire the holiness of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. Do not pollute what is holy. The second command we find in the first verse of chapter 7. Having given the command not to be yoked, be unequally yoked with unbelievers, having asked the rhetorical questions and pointed to the testimony of the Old Testament, in verse 1 of chapter 7, the text says, since we have these promises. Now, what are the promises he's talking about? He's pointing to the, the promises that were, that were quoted out of Isaiah and Deuteronomy and Ezekiel, that, that if we will separate ourselves from the world, the, the promised blessing is to be a child, a son, and a daughter of the living God. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, just, oh, there's a lot here, but I just want to draw your attention to two main ideas here. Number one, seek righteousness in the flesh and in the spirit. The first verse of chapter 7 is the response to chapter 6, 14 through 18. And though Paul at this point doesn't use the word therefore, it has the same idea. Because these things are true, verses 6, 14 through 18, we have these promises, therefore. So what he's saying. This is how we live in response to what God has done for us. Verse 14 is a prohibition, the negative, do not. Verse seven, verse, chapter 7, verse 1 is a command. Because these things are true, therefore do these things. What does he say? He says, because we have the promise of God, because we have been made saints of the living God, we are to actively cleanse ourselves. Actively cleanse yourself. It is true, listen to me carefully here, it is true that God makes you righteous through the blood of Jesus. If you are to stand before the living God, you will never do it on your own. The only way to be holy and pure before a holy and pure God is to be covered by the blood of Jesus who knew no sin. So it is right, it is true, it is appropriate to say your righteousness comes only from the righteousness of Jesus. That is true. But you have a part to play as well in what you keep out of your life and what you chase after. Dear friends, holiness will not happen by default. Nobody backs into holiness. Nobody wanders into holiness. You hear me? You will wander into sin. You will wander into wickedness. You will back into all kinds of terrible things, but nobody accidentally shows up one day and realizes they're holy. This is an active pursuit of those who love the Lord. Actively pursue holiness. And, and, and the, the, the command here is to cleanse out, to, 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 to clean out every defilement in your life. A couple of things here. First, give no comfort to sin. Give no comfort to sin. Have you not noticed that animals that hang around your house, around your house are the ones you feed? Give no comfort to sin. Feed it not. 
It doesn't matter if a particular sin is accepted by our culture or our community. It doesn't matter if a particular sin is hidden from the church, the community, or your family. God sees all and demands that you live totally for him right where you sit right now. He knows what is in your heart and your mind. He knows what you do. Dear friends, it doesn't matter if nobody in this church knows about it or will ever find out about it. Cleanse your life of all wickedness. And seek righteousness and holiness in both your actions and your spirit, both in your flesh and in your spirit. The word that's actually used there, the the English Standard Version translates body and spirit, but the word is actually flesh and spirit. In other words, it's not enough to just look good externally while allowing sin to remain in the secrecy of your heart and mind. So yes, live holy in your flesh. That means what you do, what you consume, what you give your body to. Yes, live holy there. But also live holy in your spirit. What you love, what you think about, what you desire. And one other thing. Do so. Seek after righteousness because of God's love for you and your fear of God. The two things that motivate holiness, God's love and God's judgment. Verse 7 declares that the saints are beloved. In other words, they're loved of God. And friends, you are indeed, if you're a saint this morning, if you've been saved this morning, you are indeed loved of God. His love compelled him to send his son Jesus to die for your sin. That was motivated out of love. His love is what provided a way for you unto salvation. That was motivated by love. We love to quote this precious passage out of John chapter 3 where it says, For God so what? Love the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is absolutely true. God loves you. But chapter 7, verse 1 also points to the fear of God. Jesus is coming again. And he's coming again in judgment. On the day of judgment, all things will be exposed. That's unsettling, isn't it? Both physical and spiritual. And all the things of this world will be consumed and destroyed. The text is pointing us to these two things. We we live holy in part because God first loved us. So motivated out of his love, we, we respond in obedient living. But we also obey out of holy fear, knowing that the judgment of God is coming to reveal what is true. Now, I've experienced that in my own life. Sometimes I obeyed my parents growing up because I loved them and they loved me. Sometimes I obeyed because of the wrath of my father. Amen? For the love of God and the fear of God cleanse your life of all unrighteousness. the current cultural context that we're in 
assumes that distinguishing between what is holy and profane is immoral discrimination. And because of that, those who have accepted this way of thinking have sought to reject any standard or requirement that might distinguish between good and evil, holy or unholy, moral and immoral. But friends, the Bible declares that those who are in Christ must live according to the standards of God's righteousness, not the world's opinions. Many years ago, we were living in South Carolina, and I was a part of a group that was touring our community's infrastructure. And on a particular day, we toured the city's water treatment plant. Now, I'm thankful for water treatment plants, aren't you? Water treatment plants take the nasty and make it clean again. And on that tour, they had, uh, the employees there of uh, the treatment plant had taken us around to these massive tanks that raw sewage went in, and on the other side, clean, they claimed drinkable water came out on the other side. That's impressive. I'm thankful for that. But toward the end of the tour, one of the men who'd been working there for a very, very long time took us to what he called drying beds. And they were low-walled um, tanks that he, he explained that when the volume of water coming into the water treatment plant was more than the big cleansing tanks could handle, they would pump the excess untreated raw sewage into these drying tanks and allow the natural process of evaporation to extract the water. And what would be left was a brown dirt-like substance that could then be, loaders could come in, scoop it up, and take it away. Now, that's all fine and good. I was fascinated to learn that. The employee was fascinated. He loved what he did. I was proud that he loved what he did. I'm thankful that he did what he did. And as he is explaining this to us, with his bare hand, he reached down, and he scooped up some of that brown dirt and said, see, it just, and he just, as he did like this, and it just fell through his fingers. Now, I made a mental note of that. Because that was the end of the tour. And as he began to say goodbye to us and we began to depart, he began to stick out his hand and want to shake our hands. Well, what's wrong with y'all? Do y'all not like him? Is he not made in the image of God? Yes, but that hand was nasty. And so strategically, I began to position myself in the crowd so that he would have no opportunity to even get close to me to shake my hand. It's not because I didn't like him. It's not because I thought I was better than him. But his hand was dirty. And if I touched his hand, then my hand would become dirty. Now, you all appreciated that, and you probably would have done something similar. Because even though we live in a world that says there's no distinction between clean and unclean, we know that there is. Even though we live in a world today that says there's no distinction between holy and unholy, we know that there is. 
And even though we live in a world today that says there's no distinction between what is acceptable before God and what is hated by God, we know that there is. Friends, we're not called. We're not called to accommodate the world's opinions. We are called to live according to the righteous standard of the living God. And he says to you and me, O temple of the living God, do not yoke yourself with the things that are in rebellion, that have no partnership, that have no fellowship, that have no symphony, that have no accord with the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, you cannot be holy before God and yoke yourself to the sinful things of this world. Because of God's love for you and your holy fear of God, cleanse yourself from every defilement of both body and spirit. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.